Well, turn with me to Numbers chapter 31, and we'll be there just for a moment, Numbers 31, then we'll go back to chapter 25. God demands total loyalty from his people. It is the very least that we can do as those redeemed by his grace, by his mercy. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ, his priorities will be your priorities. His desires will be your desires. Jesus said very simply that if you love him, you will obey his commandments. And we see the prototype of this covenant relationship with God in God's relationship with Israel. Israel has now arrived on the plains of Moab. They're now in the region of Shittim, which basically looks across the Jordan River to the city of Jericho. That would be their first stop on their conquest of Canaan. We've just had last week, we, had, we saw the saga of Balak, king of the Moabites, trying to get Balaam, the false prophet, to curse Israel. But God would not let Balaam curse Israel. Now, last week I said that the text of Numbers 22, 23, and 24 didn't tell us directly, but it seemed a reasonable assumption that Balaam was behind a scheme to get Israel interlocked into sexual immorality, thereby leading them to idolatry with Moab. And so we could assume that from the text of those three chapters. But now we can see the direct evidence that that was in fact the case. Look at Numbers 31, verse 13. Moses and Eleazar the priest and all the chiefs of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp. And Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds who had come from service in the war. Moses said to them, have you let all the women live? Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor, And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Something horrible has happened to Israel. that has caused a plague among them. Something horrible with the women of Moab. And that is the incident that's recorded in our text now back in Numbers 25. We can turn back there. Numbers 25. It's a short chapter. It'll be easier to just read the whole thing. And then we'll make some comments on it. Numbers 25, verse 1. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, He rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them. 
so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore, I say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. The name of the slain man of Israel who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Salu, chief of a father's house belonging to the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Kozbi, the daughter of Zur, who was the tribal head of a father's house in Midian. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Harass the Midianites and strike them down, for they have harassed you with their wiles, with which they beguiled you in the matter of Peor, and in the matter of Kozbi, the daughter of the chief of Midian, their sister, who was killed on the day of the plague on account of Peor. Chapter 26, an important chapter in Numbers, is primarily the second census now of the this entire second generation of Israel. The first generation has died off in the wilderness. And then we would make a note of God's faithfulness. Israel left Egypt with 603,550 fighting men. Numbers 1, 46. After 40 years in the wilderness with all the older men, those 20 and older, dying off in the last 40 years. Look at chapter 26, verse 51 This was the list of the people of Israel, meaning the men of Israel, 601,730. Basically, what this means is that within 1,800 people, God had been faithful to keep the same number of men in Israel. Now, we just saw in the previous chapters how gloriously God defended Israel, and now his precious people shame themselves as they've settled on the banks of the Jordan River, and they begin to have an unhealthy interest in the women of the surrounding tribes, the Moabites and the Midianites. And this is disloyalty. Disloyalty to the Lord causes extreme pain, not just for the one being disloyal, but to the ones all around them as well. This text in chapter 25 now is clearly serious. It's grave in its nature. It's, it's overwhelming. It shows sin in such ugliness. It shows the deep abiding anger of God at sin And the need for redemption. It shows the need for our atonement as essentially Zimri and Cosby were sacrifices for sin. They weren't righteous sacrifices, but they were sacrifices nonetheless. And it certainly shows the nature of spiritual deception that a wicked outside power, Balaam, plotted to deceive Israel and was wildly successful in doing so. I got to be honest with you. For me, as a preacher of the word, I come to Numbers 25 and it makes me groan a little bit, especially this morning. We're preaching at the end of First Timothy 1 and it's just this dark tone of a text. And then I go, oh, we're good. We're doing Numbers 25 also. We'll just have dark minor chord Sunday this week. But it is the inspired word of God. And this tells me that there are certain portions of scripture that are meant to stop us in our tracks. To consider very carefully what it means to be disloyal to our God. What it means to be on the wrong side of his anger. Now of course this text also makes us yearn to run to the safety and the security of the cross of Christ. To cling to the forgiveness which has so graciously been given to us. And so tonight we have a lot to cover. So I have some advice for you. My advice for you is to keep the cross at the forefront of your thinking, and yet let this sobriety, let the seriousness of this story remind you of the holiness of God and how important it is to live in fear of ever being disloyal to Him. 
I mean, after all, the Lord Jesus Christ gave his life for you. He gave up his heavenly glory to come to earth to die a sinner's death so that you could go to his heavenly glory and live in eternal life. And so the very least we can do is to be loyal to Christ. This is a somber and a serious topic, but I do promise it will have a happy ending. I promise you there. What I'd like to do with this text is do a character study. Because I think this will be most helpful to us. And we could divide these characters into two large groups with three subgroups in between. Or in each one of them. The two large groups are simply the people and the leaders. And I'd like to show you, first of all, three types of the people and three types of the leaders involved in a disloyalty to the Lord situation. We'll start with the people, and then we'll go on to the leaders. The first type of people that are involved in a disloyalty to the Lord situation, we'll call them the disobedient wayward people. The disobedient wayward people. The story starts off with this really disturbing phrase. The people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Some of the men of Israel were engaging in immoral sex acts with the, with the women of Moab, but not just any women. These are called the daughters of Moab. In the Old Testament, daughters followed by a place name such as Moab generally means unmarried virgins. These are the young women of Moab being given indiscriminately to the men of Israel. Not as wives to be honored, not as mothers to bear children, as a wife and mother in a family context, that the context is verse 3. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. These young Moabite girls are being offered essentially as pagan cultic prostitutes. They're being given up for that. Undoubtedly being told by their parents and their leaders that they need to save Moab from destruction by leading the men of Israel astray. Remember the whole context is the, the king of Moab is terrified of Israel. And Balaam gives them the idea, well, you can't curse them, but you sure can get Just use, the, use your girls, use your women. We should remember also that Israel has been eating the manna given by God each day. And look what goes along with sacrificing to the local deity, Baal Peor. That just means Baal of Mount Peor, the high place where the sacrifices to the false god Baal would be made. What goes along with that? They feasted. They ate. They had meat and drink and wonderful things. But the deal was very simple. They get to have the virgins of Moab. They get to eat their fill, but they would have to bow down to Baal. And they did. They did. And so now the people of God are being polluted. And by the way, any foreigner, any sojourner could join with Israel at any time by having faith in Yahweh. But now they're trying to join themselves to Israel by means of sexual immorality and dragging God's people into idolatry. And we have to recall, Israel had no idea whatsoever that King Balak of Moab had just tried to have Israel cursed by the false prophet Balaam. They didn't know that. But now, undoubtedly, he had sent messengers with gifts, with an invitation. Come on over to our land for some nights of food and pleasure. And some of the men of Israel fell for it. They listened to their own passions and they were willing to bow down to another god to get their fill of pleasure it gets even worse, though. Keep this in mind. The adult men of Israel, pretty much across the board, were married. These were married men. 
This was ripping apart the marriages of Israel. Men going off into the night for feasting and immorality, leaving wives and children in their tents to wonder where their husbands and their fathers have gone. And how sad it is that this is right on the heels of the blessings on Israel pronounced through the tongue of Balaam. You recall in Numbers 23.9 that Israel is alone among the nations. They're unique. You recall from Numbers 23.21, He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. Balaam pronounced a blessing in Numbers 24.5, How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel. But the men of Israel left the lovely encampment of the people of God with the tabernacle, with the very presence of God in their midst. And they went to the tents of Moab to whore after the virgin daughters of that nation to ruin not only themselves, but by the way, to ruin a bunch of young women whom they used merely for their enjoyment as objects of lust. So what was the problem with these men? Well, their problem was very simply that their theology wasn't strong enough to overcome their treachery. Their theology wasn't strong enough. Their view of God wasn't high enough to be motivating them to be loyal to the Lord who had taken care of them for so many decades while they were fed, they were protected. Their sandals and clothes hadn't worn out in four decades in the wilderness. They're on the verge. They literally could look across the river and see their home. They're on the verge of being home. And yet their view of God wasn't high enough. Listen, when your view of God is lower than your view of yourself, trouble's coming. And your preferences and your desires and your actions begin to follow. And these men really had no excuse. Can I remind you of something? They had the visible presence of God with them. All they had to do was look to the tabernacle and see the cloud of the Shekinah glory of God right there. It's all they had to do. They had the tabernacle. They had the priesthood. They had the sacrifices that were in their midst. They had the recent victory over the mighty King Sihon of the the Amorites. They had plenty of firsthand evidence of the greatness and the majesty and the worth of God. It's not like that they could plead ignorance at all. It wasn't as if, by the way, the men of Israel lacked for any physical fulfillment. They could all be married. They could enjoy the fruits of the marital bed all they wanted. But like sin so often does, It deceived them into thinking there was something more, that they could find more. They lusted after pleasure outside the confines of marriage, outside the responsibility of a loving wife and raising their children. How does disloyalty to God often come about? It's when you're tempted by something that you deeply desire. And listen, this goes far beyond sexual immorality. Let me just give you a few examples because Satan is very tricky Someone might be deeply tempted by a desperate need for order and predictability and you begin to make everyone around you suffer because they have to conform to your impossible standards. And now you've become somebody who's difficult to be around because you have no grace. Others are tempted by a desperate need to never take a risk. We talked about that last week. To live life just trying to get through unscathed and you become someone who has no faith, who demonstrates no faith and who can't set an example in that way. Others are deeply tempted by a desperate need to please people, to be liked by everyone, and to appear righteous in every way. And so you begin this little slow maneuver off the track of faith in the Lord. The danger is that Satan clearly understands how to deceive, and he's not going to deceive using things that are obvious to you. 
But rather, He's going to prey on your weaknesses, your tendencies, your spiritual blind spots. Do you know what they are? Have you taken stock of where you know you're the most vulnerable? Let me put it this way. I'm not talking about your weaknesses. I'm talking about your strengths because those are your blind spots. Your greatest weakness may be something you perceive as your greatest strength and thus you're vulnerable to be deceived by it. Let me give you some examples. You may perceive as a strength a great ability to reason and debate and yet that can be used to foster a, spirit, a, a fighting spirit, a pugnacious spirit, an aggressive spirit, a lack of deference, a lack of ability to compromise. You may perceive as a strength a great ability to avoid sources of immoral and sinful influences. Yet that could be used to foster a spirit of arrogance toward anyone who utilizes their freedoms in a different way than you do. You may perceive as a strength a great ability to do holy, internal, or eternal things. And yet this can be used to give you an overinflated sense of self-importance. Simple example, King David knew he was being used by God and yet somehow managed to deceive himself into adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. Here's another example. You may perceive as a strength and ability to be very logical and to put everything neatly in a box which makes you comfortable. And yet this can be used... To believe that your box is the standard of right and wrong and create angst and anxiety when someone else has a different box. Another example, you may perceive as a strength a deep sense of right and wrong and yet this can create in you a judgmental spirit which doesn't allow you to be genuinely, truly close to others that don't measure up to your standards and you may find yourself part of the church of Jesus Christ but not actually close to anyone. Your greatest strengths can be used against you as your greatest points of vulnerability. Here's a simple question to ask yourself. What is my greatest strength? The thing about me that really helps define me. And how could that be used against me? How could that be exploited? What do I need to guard against? And of course the answer to all of that is humility. To treat one another as better than ourselves but it creates a situation of disloyalty. It creates a situation where if you are deceived, you become one of the disobedient, wayward people. Nobody wants that. Nobody desires that, but then you find yourself there and you don't even know it. There's a second type of people in a disloyalty to the Lord's situation. We'll call them the unfortunate victimized people. The unfortunate victimized people The men in sin weren't just turning their backs on the Lord for some nights of fun. They were tearing apart the fabric of a God-honoring society, which is the family. That's what holds a society together. The families of Israel were weeping because of the devastation of wayward husbands and fathers, sinful, selfish, sexual sin, right when Israel was on the verge of having their own homeland, building homes and towns and a nation and a life together. In fact, the families of Israel were seeking the Lord. Verse 6 says they're weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. That was as close to the sanctuary as the people were allowed to get. They got as close as they could go. Wives and mothers, faithful sons and daughters, men who had remained faithful, crying out to God in despair that their nation was being torn apart. Listen carefully. It started from an outside enemy, Balaam, but it became that the enemy was within. And the nation was being torn apart from the inside because of the acts of selfish men. They lost their unity. 
And now among them they had worshipers of Yahweh and worshipers of Baal of Peor. Both. They had been spiritually infiltrated and also now devastating families. What, what a grief this must have been. How unbelievably intense must have, this, must have this scene been if these families all joined together at a, their place of worship to weep together. They clearly needed to be with the Lord. They clearly needed to be with one another, fully knowing that many of their men were absent because they were off pursuing their own lusts. Sin is never without other victims. Never. Not only does sin harm the one consciously rebelling, but those around them are harmed as well. And that's the problem with secret sin. It may very well remain a secret, but the effects of it will come out in other ways. I promise you it will. People will be hurt and devastated whether the actual secret sin ever comes out or not. They'll see it. The effects of it will be there. There's a third type of people in a disloyalty situation. We'll call them the severely disciplined people. The severely disciplined people. Aside from Zimri and Cosby, whom Phineas killed, a plague from God has set out among the people, killing 24,000 of them, basically 2,000 from every tribe on average. This is, to this point, the severest discipline God has given against Israel yet. Now, the text doesn't say if God was only disciplining those who actually sinned or if this was a general discipline of the nation. The idea of a plague seems to indicate a disease sweeping through people as a whole and disciplining the nation as a whole. The text doesn't say, but the main point is that God was infuriated enough that the death penalty was implemented at a huge rate. Now, there's an important question here, and part of the question of the book of Numbers is, will the second generation be more faithful than the first? Well, so far, in this particular instance, they're worse. The first generation was judged by God for their fear of entering the promised land, for their lack of trust in the Lord. But this is a new low, whoring with the daughters of Moab, going after false gods. God has given them his covenant expressed at its core by the Ten Commandments, and the men of Israel were breaking how many of the commandments? Let's see. First commandment, have no other gods before me. Clearly breaking that one. Second commandment, you shall not bow down to a carved image. Clearly breaking that one. Third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. They claim to be the people of God, yet they went after other gods. Fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The text doesn't tell us whether they were keeping Sabbath or not, but they couldn't possibly be keeping Sabbath if they were spending their days and nights in the tents of the young women of Moab. Fifth commandment, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. The days of many were cut short. What does that tell us? They were dishonoring their parents who had desired them to be faithful. The sixth commandment, you shall not murder. By bringing the wrath of God, they had officially, in essence, killed their own countrymen and they had blood on their own hands. Seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Obviously, they're breaking the hearts of their wives, shattering their families, Eighth commandment, you shall not steal. They stole glory from God. They stole the innocence of countless young girls of Moab. They stole the sanctity of their marriages. Tenth commandment, you shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's, wanting what is not yours to desire. Clearly breaking that one. Out of the Ten Commandments, they were breaking nine of them. And if they lied about it, they broke number nine also. This sin was in essence Israel tearing their covenant with God into pieces and throwing it on the ground. Their agreement was to follow him and to worship him and they broke it. 
But where was the root of this sin? It lay primarily at the feet of the leadership of Israel. Which brings us to our second group, which a disloyalty situation involves, the leaders. Here's the first leader type involved. We'll call them the selfish, sinful leaders. The selfish, sinful leaders. Verse 4. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. Wow. Does this mean that all the leaders, the, the family leaders, were equally guilty of this sin of going over to the people of Moab and Midian, by the way, who were a neighbor and an ally of Moab? Were they all equally guilty of worshiping Baal Peor and to feast and being immoral? The text doesn't say directly, but apparently enough of them were guilty that God was either making an example of all of them or perhaps some of them didn't have the courage to stand up and call out others that they had participated by means of their silence. But we do know that in some way the family leadership of Israel was so rotten that God was intent on replacing every single one of them. And it is safe to say that the family leaders of Israel, the clan leaders, had no fear of discipline from within their own ranks because one of them did something so heinous, so blatant, that he clearly showed utter fearlessness concerning his own sin. Chapter 25, verse 6, And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. Who is this man? He is the son of a chief of a Simeonite tribe and now a chief himself. Verse 14 tells us this. What does this make him? It makes him a prince. A prince of the tribe of Simeon. But it gets worse. Some of the men of Israel were going to Moabite towns to sin. But this man Zimri brings home a Midianite woman. And this is no longer just a scandal about sexual sin. Verse 18 says that the woman is Cosby, daughter of the chief, the king of Midian. She's a princess. What does it mean when a prince, Zimri, brings home a princess from another nation? It means he is attempting to join the two nations together. But it gets worse still. Notice that Zimri apparently felt comfortable bringing home a Midianite woman to his family. He would almost certainly not do that unless he was confident that his family would be fine with it. His family is culpable as well. But it gets even worse. This is almost too graphic to describe, but Zimri not only brought Cosby the Baal worshiper to his family, verse 8 says that Zimri and Cosby had gone into the chamber. This is a word sometimes translated tent, and most often is thought to refer to his family's tent, to make her part of the family, so to speak. That's not where they were. They were not in his family's tent. The tent of verse 8 is different than his family's tent. This word is only used here in the Old Testament, and it means a pavilion or an alcove, suggesting that it was set up as an alternative to the holy tent of meeting. And it was used for sacred, pagan prostitution. How do we know this? The people of Israel are weeping at the door of the tent of meeting, the real place with the real God. And this tent for pagan sin was blatantly set up right there at the entrance. Like, don't worship Yahweh, come worship Baal of Peor instead. 
that not only did Zimri take Cosby to his family, he marched her straight through the ranks of Israel, right up to the holy tabernacle of God, went into this chamber which had been set up, and began to be intimate with her, fully knowing that all Israel was watching. This is heartbreaking. Zimri was among the men, the warriors, who had successfully battled King Sihon. He had seen the glory and the might of God going before them, and yet now he's gone crazy with his own selfishness, his own entitlement as a leader. We see examples of this even in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul had to deal with this in two different heartbreaking episodes with leaders. In the first episode, Acts 15.38 and following records a sharp disagreement that Paul had with young John Mark because John Mark had in some fashion stopped being supportive of Paul's ministry and, quote, had withdrawn from them. He was disloyal. Paul wanted to send John Mark home, but Paul's ministry partner Barnabas had a problem. He was cousins with John Mark, and sometimes blood is thicker than, than water. And so they split over this because Paul was not going to work alongside someone who in some way had undercut his ministry. In the second episode, we fast forward many years. One of Paul's closest ministry companions had been Demas. Colossians 4 and the book of Philemon list Demas as one of Paul's faithful ministry co-workers, faithful men. But at the end of his life, Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.10, quote, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. In love with this present world, what does that mean? So distracted by either gaining the things of the world or trying to please the world. Zimri, once a faithful leader in Israel, now flaunting himself in front of the people, not caring that the people of Israel are weeping over this sin, this split of God's people. But there are other types of leaders involved in the disloyalty situation. Here's a second type of leader. We'll call this one the hesitant rationalizing leader. The hesitant rationalizing leader. When many of the men of Israel began worshiping Baal of Peor with all the attendant feasts and the cultic prostitution involved, the Lord was angry and rightfully so at this incredibly hurtful display of disloyalty. And so God is going to purge Israel of those that he will hold responsible Verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. Moses is to take the clan leaders, the family leaders, the leaders of these subgroups within the tribes, and he's to hang them. It means to kill them and impale them on sticks. It is considered in the ancient Near East the most degrading way to have your body displayed. No burial just hung up on sticks for the birds and the animals. It was meant to be a gruesome reminder of the wrath of God and what disloyalty causes. Now, we should remember, it is inaccurate to view the God of the Old Testament as somehow different than the God of the New Testament. He is a God of wrath from Genesis to Revelation. These are not the words of some impetuous and petty little deity whose feelings got hurt, and so like some sort of toddler, he's taking his anger out on his people These are the words of a holy God who has entered into a holy covenant with his people, a covenant which Israel agreed to, by the way. It was to be a covenant of love and protection that if Israel would love the Lord her God with all her heart and obey his commands, he would shower her with blessings and prosperity and peace and joy in their land all upon them. 
But instead, Israel has betrayed this covenant and God has already warned them that covenant treachery will incur his wrath. And so what's to be the result of Moses executing the chiefs of Israel, of taking out the leaders into verse 4, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. This is a statement of atonement, of satisfying the wrath of God, that God will be satisfied. Now, why was it the chiefs that were to be executed? The text doesn't say, but we've already seen one of them, Zimri, acting in blatant, open defiance of the worship of the true living God. One possible reason that the chiefs were to be executed was that the chiefs as a group were being held responsible for not stopping the men of Israel in acting in defiance for God, to God, that they themselves maybe didn't participate, but they passively allowed other men to do so. Another possibility is that they're the only ones who actually committed these sins with the daughters of Moab. Given that the chiefs were the biggest influencers and certainly 600,000 men of Israel likely didn't all go over to Moab and that getting the chiefs of Israel into idolatry would effectively lead the whole nation astray, that possibility makes sense. But there's a third possibility as to why it was the chiefs to be executed. That not only were they the primary participants, but they also didn't stop their subordinate family members, the younger men, in the family from going over to Baal Peor in Moab. That third option is by far the most compelling option. That the chiefs were the primary sinners, but other younger men were simply following their example, maybe even thinking, hey, if the chiefs are doing this, it must be okay. Let me explain. First of all, the heart of God is not to execute in horrific fashion someone who is not personally guilty. In fact, shortly after this incident, Moses will be preaching to Israel's sermons, which will become what we have as the book of Deuteronomy. And he'll say in Deuteronomy 24, 16, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. The second reason, listen carefully. How do we know that some of the younger men followed their chiefs into sin and yet God intended to be merciful to the younger men, perhaps because of ignorance? Well, we do know this. That is the second reason that it was the chiefs and the younger men. I want you to follow my logic here. This is going to take a moment to piece this together. When Moses was to execute the chiefs, what was supposed to happen? End of verse 4. Look at the end of verse 4. What was supposed to happen? The fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. Look at verse 9. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. Did the fierce anger of the Lord turn away from Israel? No, it didn't. What does this mean? It means that Moses hesitated. He rationalized and he didn't obey. He did not do what God commanded him. Verse 5, Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal Peor. Moses didn't tell the appointed judges of Israel, these were the legal helpers of Moses, not the chiefs. He didn't tell them to kill the chiefs. He told them to kill any of the men in their charge who had participated, most likely not including the chiefs. We don't have a reason for Moses' action, but the result is clear. Atonement has not been made. Zeal for the holiness of God and for the covenant of God has not been shown. And thus now God begins a sweeping plague through Israel. Human executioners are only to execute the guilty for their own sins. But God is certainly free to exercise discipline on any that he wants. 
And so he begins to exercise discipline on the entire nation. And so this plague begins sweeping through Israel. Why? Because God told Moses to do something and Moses said, I know better. I'll do something different. Maybe he thought that executing all the chiefs of Israel would bring a leadership crisis, maybe even a revolt if the revered heads of families were slain. But whatever his thinking was, he hesitated and he rationalized. He used human intuition and logic instead of merely obeying the Lord. Listen, it's the same thing in the church of Jesus Christ. The great failing of leadership is often the use of human experience, logic, rationalizations to create a ministry direction rather than simply taking the hard work and the effort to search the scriptures to come up with a philosophy of ministry, a reason for why we do what we do, a reason for understanding the direction we go. The great lie that Satan, the evil one, would like leaders of the church to believe is that they're leaders so that their opinions may be followed or so that their worldly wisdom may be the guiding influence of the church. That's a lie. That's a lie. God doesn't look at the resume of men, say, oh, look, he graduated from this university. I'll bet he'd make a good elder. No. Leaders are there because God expects them to lead the church in total obedience to Christ. Period. That's why they're there. That's why the leadership of a local church must all have the qualification, as 1 Timothy 3, 2 says, of able to teach. Titus 1, verse 9 gives a lot more detail. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That, brothers and sisters, is the job of the leadership of the church, to shepherd in the knowledge of the word. That's the job. And Moses failed. He hesitated because he believed his own rationalization, his own logic, his own experience over the command of the Lord. As a matter of fact, it's very likely that chiefs were spared who should have died and men were killed that God intended to be spared. Moses misled the judges of Israel who would have assumed that Moses is acting on God's authority and he made a miserable choice. Now, I promised we would have a happy ending, and we do get one here. There's a third type of leader involved in a disloyalty situation. We'll call them the zealous, decisive leaders. The zealous, decisive leaders. When Zimri, a chief from the tribe of Midian, Midian, uh, Simeon, rather unashamedly brought Cosby, the Midianite princess, to a tent of sin right in front of the tabernacle, with the people of God weeping all around, their little tryst did not last very long. Aaron, the former high priest, was now dead. His son Eleazar was high priest, meaning that Eleazar's son Phineas was now in charge of protecting the sanctity and the holiness of the tabernacle. Remember that one of the responsibilities of the Levites is to protect the tabernacle. Three times this order is given to the son of the priests. Numbers 3, verse 10, if any outsider comes near, he should be put to death. Numbers 3, verse 38, any outsider who came near is to be put to death. Numbers 18, verse 7, any outsider who comes near shall be put to death. And whose job is that? It is the priest's. And now Phineas' actions become understandable. Verse 7, when Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly, Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. 
Zimri and Cosby are in the middle of their horrific act of disregard for God, performing what the pagans would be believed to be an act of worship of Baal Peor, deliberately right in front of the worship center of the worship of Yahweh. And in comes charging Phineas with a spear. One scholar wrote, quote, Phineas summarily kebabbed them, unquote. In fact, there's a play on words in verse 8 in Hebrew. The Hebrew word here for chamber or tent is kubah. The Hebrew word for belly is kebah. Same root word that Phineas went into the kubah and stabbed them in the kebah. Meant to make you remember the lesson. And what happens as a result? Verse 10, And the Lord said to Moses, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Listen, this is a statement of failure on Moses' part. Because if Moses had obeyed earlier, guess who would have already been dead? Zimri, the chief. And this terrible act of disloyalty would never have taken place. But because Moses wasn't decisive but was hesitant, Zimri brought much more destruction on Israel. In fact, twice in this text, God commends Phineas for being zealous and jealous. Verse 11 and verse 13 Finally, God is saying, a a leader who is jealous, he says multiple times, it's a word that means envious, zealous, stirred up in your heart. And what is Phineas jealous for? He is jealous and zealous that God's people be pure in following their God. Sounds like this morning's message, doesn't it? Why? Because God never changes. He wants his people pure. This is the expectation of God that his leaders display his jealousy that the people of God follow after him in humble, trusting obedience. And now, because Phineas, the first and the only leader in this whole terrible story of disloyalty, to finally stand up and say, enough is enough, I will stand alone. Now God is appeased and atonement has been made. And now we have a reward given to Phineas. It's a stunning reward. Verse 12 of chapter 25, therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace and it shall be to him and his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. There are basically six major covenants in the Bible which are directly named as such. They're clearly covenants because they have obligations and signs attached to them. We have the Abrahamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Israelite or, or Mosaic or Sinaitic covenant, God's covenant with Israel made at Mount Sinai, expressed in the Ten Commandments. We have the Davidic covenant, and then we have, of course, the new covenant in Christ. But the sixth and the least known covenant in this group of covenants is sometimes called the priestly covenant. And it's this one right here, this covenant made with Phineas. This is perhaps the most mysterious of the covenants, but this, there are some facts that we do know about it. Let me give you three of them. The first fact, it's short and easy. It's a covenant between the Lord and Phineas and Phineas's descendants. It's a covenant not just between the Lord and one man, but between that man and the sons who will come after him. The second fact we know is that the Lord places himself under two obligations, two promises that he'll carry out. 
The first promise is it is a covenant of peace with the Lord. It means that this covenant will be one of the means by which God maintains peace with whom? With Israel. Isaiah 54 verse 10 says, For the mountains may depart, the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord. And so it's a covenant of peace. But there's a second obligation that the Lord places himself under. He says it is a perpetual priesthood. It's a perpetual priesthood, meaning that when the Israelite or the the Mosaic covenant comes to an end at the cross of Christ, at the advent of the new covenant, God's promise to Phineas of a perpetual priesthood still stands. It's still there. Psalm 106, beginning in verse 30, says, Then Phineas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed, and that was counted to him as righteousness, listen to this, from generation to generation forever. That means that the covenant of the priesthood given to Phineas is still in operation right now. How is that to be? Well, some say that this promise is fulfilled in Christ as our great high priest, and that sounds good. Because God's promise to David, the Davidic covenant, to always have a descendant on the throne of Israel is fulfilled in Christ. There's a difference, though, between these two covenants. Jesus is a descendant of David. He is not a descendant of Phineas. So it can't be fulfilled in Christ. There's one more fact. The sign of the covenant is a set of priestly regulations. The sign of the covenant is a set of priestly regulations. Now hang with me here because we got to do some history to get to this. Follow along with me. In the years before the good king Josiah came to power in the southern kingdom of Judah, many of the priests of the Levites were unfaithful to the Lord except one group. The sons of Zadok were faithful. They kept the duties of caring for the temple and receiving the proper sacrifices of God. And if we looked at, you don't have to turn there, we don't have time, but if you looked at Ezekiel 44... God has been giving Ezekiel a vision for his future temple in Jerusalem. And this temple will have attendants, a priesthood to care for the temple, to care for all the worship associated with the temple. But because of the sins of most of the Levitical priesthood prior to the time of King Josiah, Leviticus, or uh, Ezekiel rather, 44, 10 through 14 explains that, yeah, they'll have charge of the temple. They'll have charge of the secondary tasks But, quote, they shall not come near to me to serve me as priest, nor come near any of my holy things. So who will do the direct ministry of the temple? Ezekiel 44, beginning in verse 15, says, But the Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, who kept the charge of my sanctuary when the people of Israel went astray from me, shall come near to me to minister to me, and they shall stand before me to offer the fat and the blood, declares the Lord God. They shall enter my sanctuary. They shall approach my table to minister to me. They shall keep my charge. When they enter the gates of the inner court, they shall wear linen garments. They shall have nothing of wool on them while they minister at the gates of the inner court and within. And then the rest of that chapter gives the specific set of regulations of priestly uh, specifics about the Zadokian priesthood, the sons of Zadok. What does that have to do with Phineas? First Chronicles 6, verse 50, gives us a little genealogy. These are the sons of Aaron. Eleazar, his son. Phineas, his son. 
Abishua, his son, Buki, his son, Uzi, his son, Zehariah, his son, Marioth, his son, Amariah, his son, Ahitub, his son, Zadok, his son. Zadok is a direct descendant of Phineas. And only the sons of Zadok who come from Phineas shall minister in this temple of God in Jerusalem. What temple? When are we talking about? Ezekiel 40 through 48, in which this promise of the Zadokian priesthood is given, is describing from the Lord to the prophet Ezekiel a future gigantic temple in Jerusalem. In fact, it's so specific that you could take the plans as an architect and build that building. It's that specific. One of the descriptions of the temple, and we read this just a few weeks ago, in Ezekiel 47 says, then, I brought, then he brought me to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from behold below rather the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south and end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. So what is this? This is a river emanating from this gigantic temple. When in Israel's history has there been a pristine temple much larger than Solomon's temple with a river flowing directly out from the temple? When does that ever happen? It's never happened. Yet. When will it happen? Zechariah 14.8 says, On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. On what day? The very next verse tells us, Zechariah 14.9, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. In other words, the day that the Zadokian priesthood is given charge of the new temple of God in Jerusalem, continuing the perpetual service to God of the descendants of Phineas, is the day that the Lord Jesus Christ has returned to earth. Did you get all that? For reasons that scripture isn't entirely clear about, the restored nation of Israel will have the opportunity now to finally, finally demonstrate national faithfulness and loyalty to their God as the temple system of even some of the Old Testament holy days and sacrifices are reinstituted according to Ezekiel 44. Some feel that these are memorial sacrifices to remember that Christ has died for the sins of all who trust in him. They're probably more likely it includes that idea of memorial, but it also is a time for the restored Israel that's promised so often in the Old Testament to experience finally all of the covenant blessings that God has promised to them that they clearly missed out on the Old Testament. In Hebrew, the last word in the Old Testament is the word curse. They missed it. But now by obeying the Lord in the kingdom of Christ reigning on earth in Jerusalem, they will now experience all of the covenant blessings of God, all of the prosperity that Deuteronomy 28 promised to them, the full benefits of following God in their own land. Let me put it this way. This is a chance for Israel to finally get it right. It does not replace the sacrifice of Christ. It does not undo that. It does not demoralize the sacrifice of Christ. It simply is a way for Israel to be faithful. And under the humble leadership of the descendants of Phineas, the descendants of Zadok, Israel will experience something it basically as a nation has never known, ever. 
a covenant of what? Peace. A covenant of peace under the protective and glorious reign of their true king, Jesus Christ. And that is our happy ending. An even happier ending is that you and I both can be part of the covenant of peace, not as descendants of Phineas, but as recipients of the new covenant made in our great high priest and mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is amazing in his plan. He is worthy of our loyalty. And so I would urge you, search your heart, search your actions, take stock of your life. Every word you say, every thought you think, every deed you do, are you loyal? Because he's worth it, isn't he? He's worth it. Let's pray. Our Father, what a stunning text. A sober reminder. And yet we're also told and shown very clearly that those who are truly in Christ, we will be transformed. We talked about that this morning. But Lord, as those who follow Christ, it grieves our hearts when we are not loyal to you. It grieves our hearts when we compromise It grieves our hearts when we would put any standard above yours. It grieves our hearts when we do that which we desire not to do and when we don't do the things that we ought to do. And so, Lord, we ask for your help. We're confident in our salvation. Our salvation is sealed by the Holy Spirit, and we understand that. We we celebrate that, but never would would we want it said that we would use your grace as an excuse for sin, an excuse for disloyalty. Help us, Lord, to bear the standard of Christ at all costs, even at the cost of our own lives. To not see anything in this world as precious enough, any temptation as alluring enough to compromise our faith. Help us to be loyal because Christ is worthy of our loyalty. We praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.